I'm Liam Printer and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello, bonjour, falcha, buenos dias, guten tag, konnichiwa and welcome to the Motivated Classroom podcast. I am very excited, delighted and uh, très, très, très content d'avoir uh, Cécile Lenné just en face de moi. So I have Cécile Lenné just right in front of me, but of course on the other side of the world. And today we're going to be speaking a little bit more about story listening. So just to say a quick hello. Uh, bonjour, Cécile, ça va? Ça va, merci. How are you? I'm great. It's lovely to have you here. So as always, the Motivated Classroom podcast, we start with some Irish and that is the same as every day. It's the same as today. So our Irish expression for today is, and it's kind of a sentence and it's one I use quite a lot that I like a lot. And that is Egoni which means always listening. And that's a good thing to think about for story listening and of course for language acquisition. Egoni means always and egg eishtucht means listening. Anything with egg in the front means ing in Irish. So egoni egg eishtucht. So as always, the first thing I'm going to try and do is introduce Cecile and then we're going to speak about story listening, how it applies in the classroom, in the middle school classroom, the high school classroom and what it might look like for you as a teacher who's listening to this. So Cécile Lenné has been a French teacher since 2008 in the US in a variety of public and private school settings and for many different age groups ranging from elementary to adults. And I've just found out she had a very different life before that, just like me before teaching. She is currently teaching middle school students at an independent school in Nashville, Tennessee. She's passionate about teaching for proficiency and intercultural competence through storytelling and comprehension based strategies. At the time of recording, she had published six language learner books, many of which have been translated into other languages. And I have all of them, I think, in my classroom library and the students love them. For the past seven years, she's also been co-writing a monthly publication called Le Petit Journal Francophone that provides comprehensible news from the Francophone world to learners of French. Cécile is also a very active member of the online community pushing the professional development of language teachers worldwide. And that's really how I came across her and her work. She moderates a Facebook page called CI for French Teachers, which is very, very popular and used by nearly 6,000 people. And her blog, which is called Toward Proficiency, is really, really excellent. There's so many wonderful resources on there that I've shared with my department and it is just a joy to have her in front of me. But I think one of the things that really drew me to Cécile and her work was her passionate lens for social justice equity, inclusion. She always, when I read her things that chimed with me straight away that she was talking about things that I was trying to talk about. So I'm just so happy to have you here. So thank you so much for joining me, Cecile. Thank you. It's an honour. All right. So we're going to go straight into chatting a little bit about you and story listening and French. So I guess, first of all, I'd just like to know about how you got started with story listening in your own French class. How, How did it all begin? Yeah, it began in 2016 when I came across a video by Katrin Schechtmann. You probably know her. She's a German teacher. I do. I do. Um, She teaches German and she was doing a story. And so 2016, so all those many years later, I still vividly remember Katrin saying, er mag die Suppe nicht. (laughs) I remember the way she said that. It means he didn't like, he doesn't like the soup. And I remember the way she said it. I remember the voice. I remember the gesture. I remember the drawing. So many years before, it's still a vivid picture in my head. And when I saw this video, and that was a story listening, she was drawing and and telling a story to her students. 
I just knew I had to dig in. I had to investigate what this method was about. So that was like my first encounter with story listening. After that, I was very fortunate to attend many trainings with Dr. Mason. She came to the US a few times, and every time I was there, uh, soaking it in, learning the, the research behind it. And so then I knew that, you know, I, I had to try it. You know, I was never fully committed to TPRS, um, teaching proficiency through reading and storytelling. I was never committed to story asking. I loved telling stories. I am a storyteller, but I just, the story asking wasn't what I was the strongest at. So when I found story listening, I just knew that this could be it. That's amazing. I love that. And it's actually so refreshing to hear you say that. I think that that's really important message for a lot of people to take out of this, that there are so many different wonderful tools to provide interesting inputs to our students. But what's really vital is that we find the things that work best, feel best, are best for us. And we use those maybe more than some of the others. So it's just actually very refreshing to hear you say that TPRS or story asking didn't fit exactly. But you really like the story listening aspect. That's that's so nice, actually. So I know, Cecile, that you've listened to episode 108 with Benico and Alice, uh, or I should say Alice, alongside 3000 or more other teachers to now. It's one of the most listened to episodes. Crazy how many people have downloaded it already. Now, obviously, they're coming from very different contexts to yours, like Alice is teaching online. Benico is in a university setting. How did it go for you using this method in the classroom, the middle school, high school kind of classroom with lots of different ages, different students, different backgrounds? Just tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, I think that's such an important question. And again, I appreciate you inviting me on the podcast to give sort of the classroom perspective. At the time, I was teaching in a K to eight school. So kindergarten, young children, first grade and then fifth grade and seventh grade, which is middle school. So I was teaching a variety of ages, but more on the younger side. And almost immediately when I implemented story listening, it was magical with kindergarten and first graders. Um, I would see them three times a week, 30 minutes. So we would do a quick warm up and then I would tell a story for 10, 15 minutes. And then we would do some movements, a song and off you go. And they never ask for anything else than a story. Every time I saw them, they would ask me, are you going to tell us a story today? They never asked for anything else. It was their mouths were open. They were really engaged. They were contributing. And we can talk about what contributing looks like in story listening. And they were just so engaged. Um, and my, with my first graders, I even did some action research with them to find out you know, how much can they comprehend after 50 story listening stories, after 50 stories that have been delivered through story listening. And I was so impressed with the amount of language that they could comprehend after just 50 stories. Absolutely magical with the young kids. And if you are a primary teacher listening to this podcast, I really strongly suggest you try story listening. I had a mixed experience with middle schoolers. And if you, if you know anything about middle schoolers that wouldn't surprise you. I had kiddos who loved it and I had kiddos who said, this is boring. I don't want to just be sitting and listening. Um, so I had to find uh, the right balance with middle schoolers. 
So a mixed experience. And then moving later on, I moved to a different school that had middle school and high school. So I tried it for the first time with high schoolers. And I was really surprised. I thought I was, they were going to give me the same reaction as my middle schoolers, i.e. mixed. My high schoolers also bought into story listening. Interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting. And, and let me tell you why specifically. It's because I would see them four times a, a week. The first two times of the week, we would focus on a cultural topic, okay, about the Francophone world, so a, a cultural unit. And then on Thursday, they had identified that Thursday was their busiest day, nice. where lots of teachers tend to give tests. And I said, what if on Thursday, I told you a story? And the story would be 45 minutes. They were intermediate level, so the story would last 45 minutes. And then on Friday, we read the story together, and there's no homework associated with it. And because I, I positioned it that way, they would show up. Some of them would bring popcorn, blankets. <laughs> and it. seriously, and it was like a break in there. You know, high school in the U.S., um, <laughs> it's really demanding. It's really stressful. Um, I don't need to go into that today. But uh, these, were, um, these were sophomores um, and juniors. Um, so 10th grade, 11th grade, they really enjoyed their Thursday session. So I would only do it once a week. And then the next day we would read the story together. And inevitably, when we read the story, they would notice that, Madame, there are things you didn't tell us yesterday in the story. Of course, nobody, I'm not a robot. I'm not reading the story. Yeah. I'm telling the story. So inevitably, I would miss a couple of things. And I started noticing that the next day, when we read together, they would catch the things that I had, you know, omitted. So I started doing it on purpose. And now it became almost like the next day you have to find the mistakes or the, the facts that I, that I changed or that I, and it became almost like a game. And that was so successful, like breaking my program, my 40 week into two, you know, with cultural content and developing that intercultural competence. And then Another two lessons really focused on story listening and reading. I think it's it's actually kind of nice to hear you say that you struggled a bit in middle school because like that's so many teachers experience. Right. And I think one of the things I realized here was for me, it was my year nine and ten, who's the equivalent actually of your grade eight and nine. Uh -huh. And what I often struggled with was they were so enthusiastic and into it when they were in grade seven and eight or year eight and nine over here. And then when I would get them a little bit further along the journey, it was like, no matter what I did, it was just so much apathy and like, oh, I don't want to be here. And for about three years, I like redid my units and looked at them and read this, read that, changed things. And it was always kind of the same. And then I started to realize maybe it's not me. Maybe there's something going on with puberty and age and all sorts of other things at that age that we just have to be okay with and then gradually as you say in the high school they were really into it which is which is really really interesting so yeah thank you so much for for your honesty with that i think it's really really nice actually to hear and i guess one of the things i've seen you talk about or blog about a few times was misconceptions or maybe myths around story listening and i'd like you to talk a bit more of that can you explain a bit more what you mean by those myths or, or, or misconceptions with story listening sure i think one of the greatest barriers to implementing story listening in the classroom is that lots of teachers think that the students are just passively listening and it's hard to trust and to believe that if they're just listening language acquisition is going to occur and and i would say that that has not been my experience at all so some examples the, the students 
may not be doing anything while they are listening to the story. That is true. They're not taking notes. They're not drawing. They are just focusing on the story. But they are listening and they are engaged. And I alluded to it earlier on. They are making comments that show me that they are listening. I mean, in the, with the younger kids, they are going to make comments constantly and you're going to have to manage that. With middle school, I have a simple rule. Your comments are welcome. They actually help me make sure that you're following the story. I just ask that they are relevant to the story, um, that they are in French or in Franglish. Franglish is a very valid language in my classroom. I, did, I deal with beginners. Um, and so if we translanguage a lot. Franglish is very valid, but no comments in English. And I have found that that is the right balance in middle school um, for students to be engaged, to make their comments, but not become disruptive. So they are listening. They are telling me all kinds of things. They are using their language or their translanguaging. We have a bunch of rejoinders that we use, you know, in the classroom, you know, such as, oh la vache, holy cow, or c'est effrayant, it's scary, c'est dégoûtant, it's disgusting, uh, you name it, you know. So they can use those and they then use their own language. Some kiddos make full sentences that they create and I am fine with it. You know, I'm okay to pause the story and listen to what they have to say. So that is one way that I know they are listening and I know that they're engaged. They're not passive at all. I really want to make sure that that myth is dismantled. Like they are not passive at all. The other barrier or hesitation to implement story listening I find is that there is no checks for understanding. And, you know, TPRS teachers are obsessed <laughs> with 100% comprehension 100% of the time. But if you've read Dr. Krashen and Dr. Mason at length, which I have, um, it's not about understanding 100%, 100% of the time. It's understanding messages. And it's okay if there are words that they don't understand, as long as they're following the story as much as possible, they're following the story. And if they miss a couple details, that's why we're casting this white net, right? So the students who are maybe faster processor will catch more of the story, but the students who may be your barometer students, who are maybe not your fastest processors, you want to make sure they're still catching the gist of the story, right? So you don't need as many checks for understanding if you have prepared your story, if you know your students well, and then usually within a 10, 15 minute story, I will stop two or three times to make sure we have understood a key element of the plot, right? So I don't stop every word to make sure they understand, but I stop at strategic times just to make sure we understand what's happening at that moment because it's critical to the story and I don't want to lose anybody. That's such, such an important point because it is exactly that. At the end of the day, it's a story. It's a story. So you just got to know what's happening. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Yeah, but just want to make sure they understand what's happening. And then um, at the end of the story, I have them close their eyes and they give me a fist to five on their fingers, right? So um, a one is... I have no idea what this story was about. A five is, I understood everything. And they give me this feedback, eyes closed, that allows me to calibrate my next story. And I'm always looking for three and above. If I don't have a three and above, I really need to go back and make sure that I fix that next time. So that, those are some ways that I make sure that my students have comprehended you know, most of the story, if not all of the story. I mean, and the more you do it, 
the more you, you know, the better you get, like anything in life, right? The more you do it, the better you get. And the better you know, this is the kid I need to make more eye contact with during my story. This is the kid, if I'm going to pause, I want to make sure I'm close by. I have proximity with this kiddo, et cetera, et cetera. So a quick question just based on that, that I think that's really great. And I often do something similar with, with hands up for, for understanding. What do you do in the situation where 80, 90 percent of the kids are showing a four or a three or a four on their fingers, but you have one kid or two kids who show like a one or a two? Do you go and speak to them separately later or how do you follow up with them? So I, I don't necessarily follow up unless there is anxiety. I don't follow up one-on-one is what I mean, but I will follow up in two ways. Okay, so what happens after the story? So after the story, um, I know Dr. Mason says, you know, you don't need to do anything after the story, and I love that. However, the reality of a classroom is if you teach 65 minutes and you've done a story for 15 minutes, there is time to do something else. Yeah. Even if from a language acquisition standpoint, it might not help as much as the story, you're still there with your students. So... These are the things that I do right after the story that actually will also support the few kids that I might have missed when I casted my net, okay? And, and no matter the method you're using, there will always be kiddos that you have to watch for. Like you will always miss them. Um, first, I let them download 30 seconds in English. What happened in that story? 30 seconds, talk to a partner. They don't have to retell the story. Usually they comment about the story. I teach middle school right now, so they will not retell the story they'll just comment right they'll go straight into that character was so nasty and when she did that and blah 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 right so the so the kiddos who may not have followed everything they're hearing in english now what you know some of the comments so number one number two we take a giant brain break that involves movement so usually we get up we go in a circle and we do a brain break then we sit down again And now I go back to the board. The board is full of words, phrases, sentences, and drawings, right? You, you, do you picture the, the board in your, in your head? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah? I okay. got it. So the board is covered. And while they were doing their brain break, there might have been a couple words in English because I was supporting their understanding using a little bit of L1. So I have erased those. So by now, the board is covered in French and drawings. I point at the French phrase or the French word or the French sentence. I say the word, phrase or sentence in French and then I count un, deux, trois and everybody says it chorally in English. Everybody translates chorally in English. And then once they've done that, I erase the word, the phrase or the sentence. Then I move on to another word, phrase, sentence. I point, I say it, un, deux, trois. Everybody tells me what it means in English. So those kiddos who probably needed another pass, they are getting another pass right now. But more specifically at the word or the phrase level, not the whole story anymore. Okay, so I'm catching those kids. And actually, I'm catching everybody. It's just like a nice little repetition. And it gives them a sense of accomplishment when they know what it means. Right? Yeah, They're like, of course. Oh, wow, I know what this means. And so little by little, the story disappears, but the drawings are still there, but the words little by little disappear. And now we've, you know, chorally translated all those words, phrases, and sentences that were on the board. And then I started doing this recently because my dear friend, Megan Hayes, who I'm going to credit a lot in this episode, um, she's a Spanish teacher. She teaches at the primary level. 
Um, and you know you, she has YouTube videos doing story listening in Spanish. So again, if you're a primary teacher and you want to see how that looks like in the classroom, please look at Megan Hayes' videos. I saw her asking her kiddos to say a word in Spanish that was drawn on the board, and then she would erase that drawing. So if she had, she had drawn a house, a kiddo would say, casa, <laughs> and then she would go and erase the house. Nice. So the way, I, the way I did that with my middle schoolers is I asked them, qui veut effacer le tableau? And my middle schoolers love erasing the board. <laughs> there's, there's, there's just, it's magic. I don't know. So of course I've got like, you know, 15 hands up in the air. And so I say, okay. Is there a word, is there a word you can give me in French or in Franglish if it's a sentence or, and I get, it's so interesting because I get kiddos who are ready to output an entire sentence, kiddos who just remember the word and they will raise their hand and they get the privilege of coming to the board and erasing the drawing. That's so nice. I love that. That's so nice. Oh, well, thank you, Megan. I mean, she's the one erasing the board in her classroom and I can see why, but in mine, the, the kiddos come up to the board. Okay, merci, Cecile. Yeah, that's so interesting about rubbing the bits off the board and I totally understand what you're saying about the students wanting to come up to the board. I have a student whose job it is to rub things off the board and they, they're just so into it. They love it. When I was in Agen this summer, I went and I sat in on the Breton classes by Daniel Klein-Dubois and it was fantastic because he had this board that was full of words and images and stuff by the end. And I only came in at the very end of the week, but he did something very similar to what you spoke about. He kind of essentially went through each word and, and asked them about like, well, what was this or what, what was this about? And they were able to say the bit of the story that related to that word and why it was important. And he'd point them out and gradually he erased each word bit by bit until he was left with the really key ones. So I thought that was that was really nice. And they love it. And it's so funny because, right, Liam, you know how acquisition works, right? Like we say you need to have repeated the word in different contexts, you know, between 12 and 20 times. But there are those words that the kiddos only need to hear once to, to remember forever. So, for example, I just recently told the story of the hairy toe because we are close to Halloween. Um, so I tell a bunch of spooky stories leading up to Halloween. Have you ever heard of that story, the hairy toe? No, I've not. I've not. You need to look it up. So this old lady, this old woman goes to the forest and she finds this very gross hairy toe and she decides to take it and put it in her soup and eat it. <laughs> My kids always love that story. But anyways, hairy toe is not a high frequency word. I don't really care if they never remember that word, right? But invariably, there will be a, ch a child who will raise her hand and say, you know, Le doigt de pied poilu, because that's what she wants to erase. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And that's such an important message about acquisition. You know, like, as you say, you use the expression of casting the net, uh, casting a wide net. And actually, the more I'm reading now and studying about second language acquisition, the more that there's actually, it's quite difficult to find researchers in second language acquisition who broadly agree on things. But one of the things that they broadly agree on is most of language acquisition is implicit, meaning we just pick it up without really knowing or understanding why. That's not to say there's no role for explicit. Of course there is. However, that seems to be a really broad consensus that 
everyone agrees the most language that we pick up is just this implicit stuff of that casting the net widely and a, a hairy toe is a brilliant example and there'll be kids in there who'll be picking up expressions like scary and spooky and mysterious when others don't but that's fine that's totally fine yes Okay, thank you so much. Like just, I love, yeah, hairy toe. Wonderful. It's so funny, isn't it? And some of the stories, I do a story about a moustache in the shape of a pencil and it's, it, they always remember sacapuntas, meaning pencil sharpener in Spanish. It's like an immediate thing that even students five years later, they will say it to me, you know, when we come across it. It's so funny. Okay, so of course, you are currently on the Motivated Classroom podcast. So I do want to talk a little bit about motivation. In terms of motivation and setting up the story, I just want to know a little bit, like, how do you think we should set up story listening so that both the teachers and the students are primed for success? Because we know from the research around motivation that a motivated teacher leads to motivated students. And if a teacher's feeling motivated, then her students will too. So tell me a bit about the setup so that both can feel success. Yeah, that's such a great question. Thank you so much. I don't know that I have the best answer possible, but this is my answer. Um, I think story listening, like anything that's new and very different from what you've been doing before. Um, so even if you started with TPRS, story listening still feels different. So I can't even imagine people who are maybe using more grammar or, or, or using a textbook, how difficult it would be to transition. So it takes an incredible amount of trust, right? The first component is that it takes a trust in um, the, the process, it takes trust in the fact that story listening will lead to acquisition. So the first thing we need to do as teachers is let's check that. Let's, um, let's read about it. Let's watch videos. Let's do our own investigation so that we can build our own trust in this method. If we don't trust it, then the students are going to feel that it's shaky. So trust in the process. The second element of trust is trust yourself. You know, a lot of teachers tell me, I can't draw. That's me that method really scares me because it relies on my drawing. And for anyone who's ever watched my videos, I can't draw either. <laughs> In fact, um, Liam, I don't know how many things I've drawn that looks like a penis, you know, seriously. <laughs> um, and when you teach middle school, yes, it goes there very quickly. So I hear you teachers when you say, you know, I can't draw, uh, I can't draw either. But what I did is I prepared, I prepared the very few elements where I, I knew that a stick figure just wasn't going to cut it. Like if it's a frog, it has to kind of look like a frog. So I went and prepared those specific elements um, that I knew I that I knew I had to draw a little better than my stick figures. Yeah, totally. And and on that actually, this summer I saw Yannick van der Stocken teaching story listening, and she had printed off a couple of animals or key bits and kind of laminated them and stuck them on a little stick with a magnet on the back so that she could move them around her whiteboard for different parts of different stories which I thought was ingenious like she still did loads of drawing to slow herself down when she was teaching us Dutch but she had a few of those key animals on these little sticks that could move around the board which I thought just was very very clever and she can use them in a whole variety of different stories you know. Yes but 90% of my stories are stick figures so you have to trust yourself as a storyteller. And the drawing is just one aspect of telling the story. Being a storyteller means you're engaging your students, you're drawing the students into the story. So picking a story that's going to engage them, you've already done half the work if you've picked a story that's engaging. 
And then finally, your students have to trust you, right? So trust the process, trust yourself, and then your students have to trust you. And that's why I typically don't start the year with story listening. I, and, and that is just after, you know, six, six years or so, seven years of doing it. If I still taught little kids, I would still probably start because little kids come to school with like built-in trust in the teacher. A lot of middle school students and high school don't necessarily come to school with a built-in trust in the teacher. You have to earn it. So I first try to earn their trust before I introduce something like this, where I'm gonna ask them to do something that they are not used to doing. Um, and during the pandemic, in fact, I pretty much stopped doing story listening. Like there was absolutely no listening stamina in our students. And I was not in the right brain space either to deliver story listening. So that's how important trust is to the whole process. The second piece in terms of motivation is, I alluded to that, is finding the right story. And I don't mean to put pressure, like make or break, your first story is make or break, but really knowing your students, hence waiting a little bit before telling your first story so that you can pick the story that you know is going to put fire under your kiddos, right? Um, so what does that look like? Your, the age group that you're teaching, the genders that you're teaching, you know, the, the setting of the school, the number of students you have in your room, all that is going to be factored into finding a story. Of course, a story that has a lot of natural repetition. And, you know, I, I, I know the Grimm brothers are masters at that, but I, I, I tend not to use Grimm as much as I used to when I first started with story listening. And then, of course, a story that's fairly predictable so that they can follow along. Um, I do not use a story that uh, students already know, like the Three Little Pigs or Hansel and Gretel anymore. I did that when I first started because that was the recommendation. But I find that for middle schoolers, if you're gonna tell a story that they already know, you've lost them already. The little kids will be like, oh my gosh, it's the Three Little Pigs. And they'll be so excited that now they're hearing this favorite story of theirs in a different language. The middle schoolers are gonna be like, ugh, I already know this story. So I don't start with a, a known story anymore. I start with a story that's going to surprise them, that's gonna have a, an important message. So again, the idea of getting to know your students first so that you maximize the chances of success for your first story. And then I have just two more, Liam. Um, one is that that practice aspect that I talked about. When I first started story listening, I would practice with my husband. So I would tell him the story. He'd have to sit through my little story. And what I found, it was super helpful because the pacing, you know, and even how am I going to spread the drawing on the board? Like, you know, that's so difficult. You know, Alice is using this tiny little board or, you know, I have this huge whiteboard and at the beginning, my stories would be all on one side, you know, so I had to really practice and I would practice on my husband, the spread of that story. And then finally, always the most important piece of anything we do in the classroom is setting the expectations with our students, telling them what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what you expect of them during the story. And now, now we're going back to, you know, your comments of welcome, and this is why they're welcome, because they tell me that you are understanding the story. However, here are the boundaries, right? Especially for middle schoolers, here are the boundaries. Your comments must be relevant to the story. They must be in French or in Franklish. So to recap, trust, finding the right story for your students, practicing, and setting up expectations. 
perfect that's really clear thank you so much and a lot of what you said just there actually is very much in line with the research around intrinsic motivation and positive emotions so what you spoke about first about the idea of trust between you and the students between each other and building that up that's that critical and really important basic psychological need of relatedness so when we feel a sense of belonging or connectedness to what's going on we are much more likely to be involved and then you also mentioned the idea of a story that is predictable in a way that like we kind of know the way it's going to unfold but that comes with surprises so that was really nice because when it's a bit more predictable we can follow and there's lots of confidence and that raises the students feeling that like I know what's going on I can understand it but Jean-Marc Devalle in the UK has done so much research around positive emotions and Saito in Japan and the importance that they often come to in language acquisition is the unpredictability element that that's cited over and over again as something that raises positive emotions so just a kind of a twist in the tale or something unusual that happens and it's exactly very similar to some of my biggest hits in terms of stories with the students are the ones that just have a a kind of a silly or a a turn in some direction that is unexpected and the students go like what like what how did you do that or how did that happen and that those type of things are, are really really fun and as you say the more you do it and the more you build it up you start to see what middle schoolers find funny and interesting and what high schoolers find interesting and funny and that takes a bit of time but when we get to know our students then then that really helps so thank you so much for that yeah there's some really really great stuff in there yeah and that's such a great point about trying to pick the right stories and and which ones we do that will kind of have a spike in their interest so i guess i'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit this is kind of difficult but what stories for people listening to this right now and they're going I'm, I think this is great. I want to give this a go. I've watched some of Benico's videos. I've watched some of Alice's stuff. I've listened to the podcast. I'm going to have a go at this now. Do you have any recommendations of stories they should begin with uh, for certain age groups? Um, let's see. So Dr. Mason recommends that a lot of grim tales, a lot of folk tales and fairy tales. Um, and that's what I did when I first started with story listening. I mentioned that I sort of moved away from it because a lot of them, uh, my students already were familiar with. Um, And so because I teach middle school, I needed to find something that was a little more unknown, as you mentioned, you know, like um, the brain craves novelty. So you want to make sure that you're always keeping them on their toes, not their hairy toes, though. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There is a couple of stories that, you know, are, are definitely in my repertoire by now. An important thing for me is to build the empathy muscle in my middle school students. So when I pick those first stories, I will pick a, a story with that kind of message. And so an example, perfect example of that is uh, Julian is a Mermaid. It's a book by Jessica Love. It's also adapted in French and Spanish. So I highly recommend you get it in the language that you teach. And it's the story of a child um, who is in, in, a, uh, in the metro with his grandmother and he sees some mermaids. There are people who are dressed up as mermaids and he is completely enthralled. And when he gets home, his grandmother goes to the bathroom and in the meantime, he gets um, her lipstick and puts lipstick on himself and then he grabs a plant and put you know, plants on himself and he basically adorns his body to look like a mermaid. And when the grandmother comes back, and this is the build-up, this is kind of the climax, she looks at him and she goes, oh! you know, she sees her grandson all dressed up like this. 
And for a brief moment, he's, he feels a little bit ashamed. You know, is this something that I should have done? And then the grandmother leaves. And when she comes back, and you build the suspense, when she comes back and the kids are leaning in their chair, she brings him a, a necklace. And she, and she puts the necklace around his neck. And then they go to a parade where everybody is dressed up. And it's just such a beautiful story of acceptance, of letting kiddos be who they want to be. Um, and not putting gender stereotypes on them. It's very easy to tell. And in fact, I have the book in my classroom library. So later on, when we start uh, free choice reading, my students will typically grab this book because they'll remember the story that I told and now they want to see the beautiful images that go along with it. So that's the kind of stories that I'm talking about. They're simple, um, but they are they have this really powerful message of empathy. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, and I, I couldn't agree more. Trying to find those stories of the message that are there are, are so, so important, actually. And, and you touched on one thing there about essentially using other books or stories you've maybe read with your children or with other little kids or so, many people will have come across little children's books that are kind of funny and have a funny aspect to them. And, and one of the things I would highly recommend to people listening to this is to collaborate with other teachers on this. If you have friends who are French or Spanish or Japanese or whatever teachers out there and you're trying this stuff out, if you come across a story that works quite well, share it like get a Google Doc together get a Google Drive together and be like oh this one this one worked really well with my year sevens this worked really well with my grade nines and then let other people try it out because we'll all put our own little spin and aspect on it when we do it ourselves so so yeah thank you so much for that that's very true I, I have two children and so I, I use I use the books that we read all the time I also want to put a plug um, for the, the great um, story reading project by Dr. Mason, where teachers are sharing sort of like a, a wiki of stories. So, so do not reinvent the wheel. We can probably put the link in your show notes to stories that teachers have been using for story listening. Obviously, you can never take something off the shelf. You have to tweak it yourself so that it meets your students' proficiency level and also just who they are as students. But it's a great place to start. So yeah, merci. Thank you so much for that. We'll definitely put those on the show notes and share them out along with all the other references that you've mentioned. So I'd like to ask you one more kind of big question before we kind of wrap up. And that's one question that I get a lot, particularly from other teachers of languages who maybe haven't used story listening or tried it. Is story listening enough, in your opinion? Is it enough or do we need to be doing lots and lots of other things too? That is the 1 million euro question, right? <laughs> so according to the research that Dr. Mason did, it is enough. And actually, I want to go back to um, the three misconceptions that I was talking about earlier with story listening, right? The first one was, the first myth was, you know, our students are just passively listening. They're not really engaging. Yes, they are. Um, we're not doing any checks for understanding. So really, we might be going wah, 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 and they don't understand anything. That's not true. And then the third one that I have not talked about, but fits with your question, so I'll bring it up now, is the, the third misconception is um, that students will not retain any vocabulary because we are we're just telling one story and then we move on to another story that may or may not bring the same words back and how do we expect them to acquire vocabulary if we're not using those very same words over and over like doing many activities after that story so that the words used in that story you know can get a chance to go into the brain 
And to be honest, that was one of my fears as well, that, you know, that I was casting such a wide net that nothing was going to stick. So I actually did my own little very amateur, you know, action research in my classroom with my seventh graders at the time. So I gave them a pretest, vocabulary pretest. Then I told three stories. Then I gave them a post-test with the same vocabulary words and looked at how much they had, you know, retained. And then I gave them the same post-test uh, four to six weeks after the three stories, right? So I try to replicate, again, very, uh, in a very amateur way, I try to replicate the research that Benico Mason had done. And I was completely blown away at how much vocabulary retention there was with just three stories, even six weeks down the road. And that's really how story listening is so efficient, is that it sticks for a long time. Again, back to Catherine Schechtman's uh, story like the, the, with the Zupa, right? I still remember to this day how she was saying the words and the, the words that were drawn on the board. So there is there's something about story listening that makes students retain the vocabulary for much longer than with other methods. I have also tried doing it with a reading, so story, reading, and then the pretest. And I found that, sure, they did retain more words after having read the story, but because I had spent so much time with reading the story with them, the word per minute was actually smaller. They had not retained as many words per minute, showing again that story listening by itself is sufficient. And even if you do a reading or all kinds of things afterwards, it's, you need so much time to do that, that you're not being as efficient anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah, thank you so much. I think that you've explained it really clearly, actually, and it makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I love that you've actually done your own research on that. And I mean, I, you use the word amateur, but I think that's a really important point is that everyone can do little bits of research. And I'm sure it wasn't knowing you, I guarantee it was not very amateur. So I bet you it was excellent. <laughs> and thank you so much for sharing that. Like, is there anything else you wanted to mention about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you might think, oh, OK, so then the question, the answer to the question, is it enough? Is yes. Well, it's, it's yes as far as the research is concerned, and it's yes as far as language acquisition. However, I, I, I just want to challenge a little bit. Is, it, is language acquisition the only thing that we are doing as teachers? And you're going to say, sure, we're language teachers. Well, I think of Alice Ayel, right, who is teaching adults. So adults come to her and say, you know, I want to learn the language. Give me the most efficient method so that I can learn that language as efficiently as possible. Of course, she's going to pick story listening. That is, in my opinion, my little research and based on the research out there, the most efficient way. But I don't deal with adults who have asked me to give them my language. I'm dealing with students who come in with their whole self into my classroom with a bazillion needs and acquiring a language is probably at the pretty at the bottom right of, of their needs for the day and of course we can work on motivation and, and you know your podcast is so helpful in that regard and we do our very best to foster an environment where they want to acquire the language we set up the environment so that their brains are you know the, the anxiety is reduced and we provide a lot of input so we do everything we can as teachers but in the US especially 
I, I feel ownership for the language acquisition of my students, but I feel equal ownership for developing intercultural competence in my students. And I have found that story listening is not enough to do that. I cannot develop the intercultural, so let me define what that means, that the ability to understand and respect each other across all types of potential cultural barriers. So yes, it is that empathy muscle, and I can develop the empathy muscle with stories, but how do I develop empathy for a specific culture or specific cultures without using pictures, music, you know, bringing people to talk with them, having them interact with some realia, I cannot develop empathy that way. I have to have other means. It cannot just be story listening. So, so for me, the, the answer is, is it's enough if you consider language acquisition as almost like a transaction of sort where somebody's come to you and say, I want to acquire the language, period. But as teachers, that is, we do so much more than that. Um, my middle schoolers are social beings. They bring their whole social being with them. If I don't have interactions in my classroom, I'm not meeting their social needs, right? So we have interactions throughout the story, but special person, special person interviews, that's a whole different way of interacting, right? Now you're getting to know your students and you're asking questions and answering and writing paragraph about your students. I will never let go of special person interviews even if I know from a pure language acquisition standpoint, it may not be as efficient because it's meeting another need, which is getting to know my students, for my students to be empathy toward each other. I could go on and on, Liam, on, on this, but I hope that my message is, is clear that, you know, from a pure methodological standpoint, it is really a beautiful method and so efficient. It also brings a lot of pleasure telling stories and doing a good story together. But I just don't think it's enough if you are also trained to bring the intercultural competence in the mix. And if you also train to meet your students where they are with all the other needs that they are bringing in your classroom. And the last thing I will say is a lot of teachers have a curriculum to follow. They use a textbook. I am very lucky to be working at a school that gives me complete freedom in terms of instructional methods and materials so I can build my own curriculum. But I know a lot of my colleagues, they have to follow almost to the letter, a textbook. So how do you use story listening when you're tied to you know, something rigid? So again, we're not in a vacuum. We work in school, we work with uh, students that bring all kinds of things to our classroom. So we have to deal with that on a daily basis. Um, and if I have one piece of advice for, for teachers who are using a textbook and or a curriculum and still want to use story listening, Please do not try to incorporate the vocab from your textbook in a story because what's going to happen is you're going to run yourself down to the ground looking for the right story to bring in your vocabulary list. Instead, do a 10-minute story that may not be related to what you're doing with your textbook. Just do story listening the way it was intended to be. Cast a wide net, find an interesting story and cast a wide net. And then after your 10, 15 minutes, move on to your textbook, your curriculum, the things that you have to do, you'll be told you have to do as a teacher. And then watch, watch after a few weeks, how much more your students are going to uh, comprehend, speak. If you're reading with them, read and write. It's just... Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Merci beaucoup. Yeah, and I, you've, you've hit so many things there that were just, just so on point. And I think... The phrase that is sticking in my head a lot is that context informed pedagogy, which is really about, 
your pedagogy and the way that you're doing stuff and the way that you're teaching has to be informed by the context in which you're teaching. And you're so right that most people listening to this right now are teaching in a classroom in a school that has a curriculum and that has a bunch of teenagers who are showing up with lots of different needs. So you're absolutely right. I think if I could sum up or take away a little bit what what you've just said for me is that story listening is an absolutely wonderful, effective, brilliant tool or method of instruction that we can use, but it is not the only thing that is going to help us to really reach all of our students. Exactly. Because they're so wide and diverse. And and absolutely, you're right. The the teaching of the culture, you, you can't separate language and culture. It's just impossible. You can't do that. You can't teach the language in a vacuum as in like, we'll never speak about any of the political or underlying unrest or social justice issues because that's not like language. No way. Like language is used for these things. So exactly. Yeah, I, I think you've, you've really, really summed that up really well, that it's a fantastic, brilliant, wonderful tool. But there are lots of those tools and it should be one that we use. We should absolutely use it or at least try to. But there's many other things we can do, like special person interviews, like invisible characters that really connect with our students and, and, and get them to buy in. So so merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. Now, normally, Cecile, I would end the podcast by asking you to give me three key takeaways for our listeners there's so many brilliant things you said there. I don't know how you're going to do this, but I'm going to throw that question out there to you. Lots of people are listening to this and their minds are buzzing. What are three things you want them to take away when they press stop on this podcast? Is it OK if I give four? <laughs> such a such a common <laughs> response from teachers. Can I give 12? <laughs> yeah, of course you can give four. Yeah, pas de problème. Vas-y. Merci. First of all, I would say if you're completely new to story listening, you know, read Dr. Mason's research. She writes articles. You don't have to read an entire book. It's it, they're short articles, so they're really easy to digest. I, I just you know, teachers tend to be afraid of reading research sometimes, and I get it. I'm sometimes very intimidated too, but you will find that it's very easy to read. So do that, please, and then watch videos. Watch Catherine Schechtman in German, watch Megan Hayes in Spanish and watch me if you want in for French. I recommend watching a video in a language that you're not very familiar with so you can really see the power of this method in the classroom. So that's number one. Number two, once you have your students trust, and I think we talked about that a lot today, find the right story that's going to really put a fire under your students and rewrite it, rehearse it. it. The more prepared you are, the less, the less anxious you will be telling your first story. Um, and let your students know what you're doing. Set, that's number three, set your expectations that you, and give them a way to engage with the story. And I've shared an example of what I do, which is, you know, you're welcome to comment and this is why I welcome your comments. And these are the boundaries for your comments. And number four, which I haven't mentioned during the podcast, is persevere through the first three minutes of you telling the story via story listening. Those first three minutes are really difficult. I sweat a lot during those first three minutes. <laughs> you know, the students are still trying to get into the story. You're still trying to set the characters, have the setting. You know, nothing has really happened yet in three minutes. And here you are trying to gain the attention of your students. That's hard. So persevere through those first three minutes, trust the process and trust that you have picked an engaging story and that your students are going to start commenting very soon and they're going to be enthralled with your story. 
Merci beaucoup, Cécile. Genuinely, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I've loved talking to you. I respect your work so much. And it's been such a pleasure to have you here and share all about story listening in the context, which is very familiar with many of us listening to this, which is a school context and how it might work and what it might look like. And it really complements the the wonderful initial bits of research and talking that we had from Benny Go and from Alice like really lovely to have all those different perspectives on it so I'll end there just to say thank you very much and uh, merci beaucoup and I just hope that the rest of the, the year goes okay for you so thank you merci Liam thank you so much so that was the wonderful and merveilleuse Cécile Lenné. Thank you so much for sharing all that knowledge and the context of the classroom is just so important to have that alongside what we've had from Benny Coe and from Alice. So thank you so much. And before we go to our Irish for today and that bit of retrieval practice, there is a couple of bits of really important news to share with you all. So if you're still here and still listening, you get the insights into this news that no one else is getting. So first and foremost is... The two-day in-person workshop with the Institute of Teaching and Learning in Geneva, very exciting stuff, is definitely going ahead and it is now open for bookings. There are very limited spaces. The room is only so big. It's not like the online environment where we can keep kind of taking more and more people essentially, but in this there is only so many. And it's really exciting what we've put together. It's a two-day workshop in Geneva in April 2024. So if you're listening to this in 2045, I'm sorry you missed it or maybe I'm doing something else at this stage. Hopefully not. Hopefully I've retired. Anyway, and so what I really want to do is let you know that that is now open for booking. Please have a look on my website. So liamprinter.com forward slash workshop and you will find the link to book there through the Institute of Teaching and Learning in Geneva. They've put together a brilliant programme. The first day is going to be all about teaching with CI. The next day is a real focus on teaching with co-created stories, essentially TPRS. There is some lovely tea and coffee and lunch provided both days. There's even an apéro on the Friday afterwards. So we're having some nice Swiss wine and Swiss cheese to bring everyone together. There's a meal on the Friday night with me. Uh, if that's optional, if you know, of course, feel free to just go to bed or go do your own thing but for those who want to join me for a meal in Geneva we're going to go out for some dinner and just hang out and chat languages and motivation and teaching and all those things on the Friday night so really exciting times and there seems to be an enormous amount of interest so please get in there as quickly as you can and on that note is to let you know that the special early bird price is only available for the next 10 days or so. So up until the 30th of November 2023. If you are a patron of the Motivated Classroom podcast, so if you're on patreon.com and you supply me with my crisps or coffee once a month, you get that special early bird price uh, for the whole time that the booking is open. But as I say, the places are very, very limited. There's also a reduced price if you are unemployed or in teacher training. Other than that, it is the full price, which is an extra, I think, 10 or 20 percent or so. Um, so make sure you get in there for the early one if you can. I'm really excited about it. Doing a face-to-face workshop just feels like great after COVID and all the stuff that we've gone through to be able to do something face-to-face. I've done many conferences and worked with schools in there, but an actual workshop like this is is quite exciting. So I, I hope to see many of your faces in real life there in person. That will be very cool. Now, of course, I am aware that for some people attending a workshop in person in Geneva is just not possible, whether that's the cost, whether it's the travel, whether it's family or whatever is going on at home. So I do have online workshops that I've just released the dates for. 
So this set will be taking place in February 2024. I specifically put one in the morning, one in the afternoon, so that those on the other side of the world, in Australia, New Zealand, Japan, that area of the world are able to join, which a lot of people have been asking about. I've had some people join at like three in the morning for these workshops. Crazy people over there in Australia. But thank you for doing that. But hopefully this one's at a better time for you. And then one in the evening for mainly people from the US, Canada, Europe, that kind of works a bit better for them. So Again, these fill out very, very quickly. So please make sure you get in there as quickly as you can. Even though they are online, there is a limited number. I don't like having them too big. I think it reduces the learning a little bit. So I try and limit the numbers and they've all been full in the past, uh, well booked up in advance. So please check that out again, all on liamprinter.com forward slash workshop. So sorry for all of that plugging of workshops, but for you, the Motivated Classroom podcast listeners, you deserve to have the first say and be the ones who hear about this before anybody else. I'm going to email all my subscribers in the next week or so with this. But if you're listening to this and you've made it to the end, you deserve to know before everyone else. So there you go. There's a little secret for you. All right. We can finally finish with our Irish phrase for today. And it makes sense now, right? Egoni egeistucht. Always listening. And if you were always listening to the end, if you were egoni egeistucht, then you got that special news and that update. With that, I'll say The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer The Motivated Classroom. Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow The Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.